Hey y'all, welcome to Eat Drink Social, a podcast about social media influencers and the food and beverage industry. My name is Michael Moeller, and throughout this podcast series, you'll be hearing from myself and members of the IPG team. IPG stands for Influencer PR Group and is the division of Go Social. We have offices in Louisville, Kentucky and Denver, Colorado. If you have questions, you can find us at www.ipgagency.com or on social at IPG Agency. All right, happy to be joined now by Sean Sewell in Victoria, British Columbia. Uh, Sean runs a hospitality consultancy firm called Sewell Hospitality Concepts, um, where, Sean, you basically help bars and restaurants, to my understanding. You help bars and restaurants around the world achieve their vision, and um, you're also quite well known for your TikTok home bartending videos as well. (laughs) Is that right? Uh, uh, I suppose so. I suppose, yeah, TikTok has become a a, a bit of a passion project of mine. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like that. Um, so, hey, before we get too deep into this, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and basically just how you got to this point with where you are today? Yeah, of course. Um, I started in the industry over 20 years ago. Um, I've been in Canada for over 15, uh, yeah, about 15 years now. So it has been some time that I've been here in Canada. Obviously, I'm not from Canada. I'm from Australia. Um, and about five, six years ago, I sort of started my own consultancy firm. And it's gone through a few iterations, but now it's Sewell Hospitality Com- Concepts or SHC. Um, and I'm sort of building a hospitality Death Star. So currently I'm running five different companies with three different partners and each company sort of fits a different hospitality need. So I have a branding and logo design and creative house where we do branding and design for distilleries, wineries, breweries, and restaurants. Um, I have a marketing media company where we do all online marketing, social media, that sort of thing. Um, I have a small distribution agency uh, that distributes craft spirits because we have such a massive craft spirits thing here in BC. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm trying to build something where if you came to me with basically any sort of food and beverage concept and you came to me with a, an idea on a napkin, which I've had a few napkins thrown on my uh, across the desk over the years, um, we can basically build it from that napkin idea to full post operations um, training, education, hiring, HR, the whole shebang. And so that was always my goal is to bring together a really good, good group of people who have different skill sets and different mentalities um, from outside the hospitality industry to help the hospitality industry as a whole. So how did, how did the hospitality industry become your, your life, your background? <laughs> um, I got kicked out of home when I was 17 years old um, and I went to work at a hotel uh during high school, I worked with my family's landscaping business. And so I went and worked at a hotel as a, a junior handyman at 17, 18 years old. And one night, the food and beverage manager, very flustered, runs into the maintenance office. And we had a, it was a very small hotel, like not a huge amount of staff. He's like, do you have black and whites? I'm like, yep. And he's like, sweet. Can you go get them and be back here for six o'clock? We have a wedding tonight and I'm short staffed. <laughs> so I rushed home on the train, got changed in my black and whites, came back bartended for the very first time ever. I'm not like, I know that most people have, well, I should say most people, a lot of people have these super romantic third generation hospitality people stories. I am not one of those people. Um, my very first experience with food and beverage at all um, was at 18 and uh, I got thrown in the deep end and had to work this this wedding and I had to learn how to hold a tray and I had to learn how to make simple cocktails and highballs and pour beer. And it was literally deep end. You got to swim. Yeah, you, you were thrown right into it. Um, 
Well, okay. So let, let's skip ahead a little bit to, to today and during COVID era and everything. Um, and I, I'd like to get your, your thoughts on a lot of this. So, you know, we, we saw a lot of places change how they've been doing business and how they serve customers over the, like the last year plus because of COVID. Are there any bar trends um, that you think might stick around, like cocktails to go, or, or you know, what, what are you seeing that you think will stick around? I, I kind of think COVID. You've got to try and look at the silver lining. I know it's easy to get into the the negatives of what COVID has done for our industry, or done to our industry. Um, but I do believe that COVID has sort of pushed us to innovate in a way that I don't think our industry has seen over the last twenty to thirty years. Um, we always are sort of happy with how it was and sort of romancing those old ways. And like, that's why speakeasies came back and that sort of thing. So I think the innovations I'm hoping will stay. And I think really that's going to come down evolved and sped up during COVID. Like I still think that everything we're doing now in the last six months of COVID would have eventually happened in the next five years for consumer convenience. Cause that was the trend that was going like people want to eat dinner at home. And so Cocktails at home, Zoom calls, these sort of things, I still think are going to be a relatively small portion of the revenue stream that most bars and restaurants do in the future. And if they don't do it in the future, then I think they're missing out on a really good opportunity where you can ship a cocktail kit to a big company and this company can literally have a cocktail experience online on a Monday night when you might be shut um, or quiet and have a cocktail experience directly with the bar without actually having to go to the bar. So I'm hoping that a lot of bars and restaurants keep this sort of level of innovation going and pushing um, in the way of cocktail kits, in the way of QR codes to watch the bartender make those cocktails behind the bar, these sort of things. Um, because I do think that consumer convenience is here to stay now. It's not going to reset. The, the genie's been let out the lamp. Um, and I think consumer convenience is going to sort of push bars to keep innovating that way. Um, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. So I think the stay-at-home cocktail and food experience and like the paired dinners that I've seen, I've seen people do paired dinners with wine pairings and stuff and meals and stuff like that has been absolutely crazy, um, is here to stay. And I'm hoping it does because I think that it diversifies revenue streams for most bars and restaurants. Yeah, totally. I, um, I was talking to a couple different beer bar owner friends recently and uh, he was saying that you know, essentially he's, he's creating this new concept right now, but he's going into it already with basically a pandemic fallback plan. Like mm-hmm. he's, even, even with the build out of the restaurant, making sure that if they ever had to do to go only again, it would be very easy to pivot to that. Um, so it is kind of interesting that this has kind of forced people in that industry to think about their, their concept in a different way than they've ever thought about before, probably. Well, I think it's funny because like three to four, three to five years ago, everybody's demonizing ghost kitchens. You know, you, how many articles did you read like three to five years ago, two years ago of people like restaurants demonizing ghost kitchens and demonizing these sort of like black kitchens or whatever you, they were calling them at the time, or like these hidden way, no front of house, no brick and mortar. Technically, there was just a kitchen doing delivery. Mm-hmm. And now most restaurants have turned into ghost kitchens. Like I know multiple people who are running two to three concepts out of their brick and mortar. Now, one concept is for their brick and mortar front of house area, and then two concepts are still going outside the kitchen. And so uh, you got to look at it as like, well, everything that was demonized two, three years ago is now like being completely embraced by the whole community. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. Now, I think one of something I've heard you say before, I'm not sure if it was in a blog or one of your podcasts, but I think you've said that one of the biggest pitfalls of startups and people that are maybe creating a new concept is that they want to be like XYZ brand. They want to be like somebody else. What What do you think startups should focus on as opposed to that? I think it's a little bit of 50-50. There's a, there's a bit of passion that goes into it that you want to bring your style of food or drink to the market, something that may not exist, but also a little bit of that competition. Uh, I think to compete with somebody can be detrimental. I think being passionate about the direction and the brand that you want to build, I kind of get tunnel vision and and put my blinkers on. Like I don't look at what other people are doing. So like starting my own branding company was purely because I felt that too many branding companies were coming to the market as too expensive for these small little startups. So we, we played the long, the long tail ROI. And so I think a lot of people need to, you, you have to sort of take a little bit of from the market and what the market is wanting and what is in the market is competition, but then also strive ahead as that your, your mission statement, your mantra, your, your brand is standalone and as best as you can possibly do it. Not better than them. You're just different. And I hate when people come into your bar or your restaurant, they're like, oh, you guys do the best of this and the best. And I'm like, no, we're just different. You know, we're not better than that person or better than that bar or better than that restaurant. Um, we're just different. We're just a different cup of tea for different people. So I think some people get caught up in like the old textbook ways of like market research and what's in the market and is it saturated? Da, 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 da. Like it's never going to be saturated. You, you can always find that little niche that you can sort of carve off for yourself. So sticking to your mantra and your mission statement is a big thing for me um, because there is scary times, especially when you start a startup that you're just like, I, everything I'm doing is wrong. Like everything, nothing's working. Everything I'm doing is wrong, but you've sort of got to always look at that, that big picture, that two to three years and sort of work backwards from that and go, you know, I know right now I know it's hard, but in two, three years, I might be ahead of the market and that sort of thing. And I think one thing that cocktails taught me and, and taking over Clive's back in 2009 was truly that it was a really hard 18 months, two years. Like it was really brutal. I, I laugh and, and joke with the young bartenders coming through the rains now and the cocktail culture and I remember Saturday nights at Clive's and Clive's one of the most well-known bars in Canada now, but I remember Saturday nights being by myself with a cook in the back and ringing out $120 in sales and walking with $20 in my pocket. And that was repetitive, not for like two weeks or three months or like 18 months, two years of every single week. And you'd have your good nights, you'd have your slow nights, but most of the time it was all my friends that I texted sitting around the bar exploring what we had on the back bar. But then all of a sudden something clicked in the market and we went from that to having four to five staff on a Friday, Saturday night to being full with a lineup literally over a space of three months. And so even though like I look back now and I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? Like I, sh- I should have given up. I realized now that if I had, we probably wouldn't have the cocktail culture in Victoria that we have now. So it is sometimes hard, but you go look at that, the end game and, and where you want to sort of be in two to three years and it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of setbacks and a lot of faults, but at the end of the day, if you keep sticking to your guns, you're going to make it. Yeah. It's, um, you focus on the long term, not necessarily the day of easy to get uh, bogged down by, you know, one day's bad numbers, I guess. Well, it's like any a football team, a football team doesn't get angry at one game. They get, they, they look at, they look at the season, you know, you, you can have a great winning streak and then you lose a couple of games and of course you can be down, but if your season's still going well, your season's still going well. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I do want to ask, I mean, how, how was, 
your all's overall COVID experience? Because I mean, I, I would I would assume that you all your hospitality concept was somehow impacted. It, it was tough. Um, it's still. It, I think the first quarter of this year has still been tough. Uh, I think that we're starting to sort of get some traction now. Um, I took back over Clive's after a seven-year hiatus um, in June, July, and so um, sort of taking back over that bar and, and sort of involving a little bit more time into getting that back up to a standard that I was happy with um, took a little bit of time. So it took my mind off a little bit of stuff. I also started a lot of like fun little passion projects, like I do BC Spirits Spirit a Day. So I'm at 340-something Spirit a Days right now. And so I do a daily tasting show for Craft Spirits in BC. Um so I filled my time with stuff to keep me motivated and keep me sort of going. I, I wrote my third book. I started my fourth book um, during COVID. Yeah. I'm a little bit nervous when everything goes back to normal and I start traveling again. <laughs> I'm going to fit all this stuff in if I'm on a plane. Um, but I think if you're an entrepreneur by heart, you have good days and bad days, whether or not that COVID is here or not. So I, I sort of, I'm always fluid. Um, I moved around a lot as a kid, so I never made a lot of friends. I never sort of set myself down in any sort of one place for very long. And so I feel just my mindset is pers- on a personal level is I just see it as another challenge in life, another, another move, another change, another challenge. And so for me, I had horrible days like a lot of people. I had good days like a lot of people. Um, we started the marketing media company during covid to sort of try and help distilleries with their e-commerce because a lot of stories didn't have any e-commerce set up for COVID. So we really were grinding on that as well. Um, and so again, it's, it was a lot of stuff that I got asked a couple of times earlier this year. It's like, if, the, you, if you could drop any one of your projects, what like any one of your businesses, anything like that, what would it be? And I was like, I don't think I'd drop anything. Like I'm, I'm ha- sort of happy where everything's going. So I think... Entrepreneurship is already difficult. Hospitality entrepreneurship gives another layer of difficulty because it is such a long-term ROI. I'm not like a tech startup entrepreneur where I can flip something in 18 months and walk sure. away with a million-dollar paycheck. You know, so I, I always look at the long tail, and I have to remind myself a lot of the times that you know, I'm I turned 40 last year, and I really took over Clive's in 2009. So in 10 years, what I've done from taking over Clive's to where I am now—that's a lot of stuff I've done in 10 years. So. I look back to sort of visualize the long game going forward. I'm like, what well, if I could do like twice as much of that stuff? It gave us all challenges, like distribution wise. My my craft spirits guys were really hard because on premise sort of shut down. Retail was slow. Um, there was a few little setbacks on that, but you know what? I I have my wife and my lovely daughter, and they're both healthy. My mother and father in law are both healthy. Like I didn't lose anyone during COVID, so perspective is a big thing for me. Um, you know, like, yeah, I could, I furloughed myself this week because BC shut down and I wanted to look after my staff. So I furloughed my st- myself off service. So my staff get the hours. Um, but again, like I haven't lost anyone, you know, I haven't got sick. I'm still healthy. And so I, I try and put it into a macro perspective. The, the little micro things can piss you off, but in the macro, we're pretty lucky. Totally. That, that's a great perspective. I do want to go back to something you said a second ago about how you wouldn't necessarily drop anything. You have a lot of different projects going on um, and you wouldn't you wouldn't drop anything. I've actually heard you mention before that um, people need to define their own idea of the work-life balance. So what is, what is work-life balance to you? Work makes me happy. So 
regardless of my relationship with my family before I, I left home, my dad was a, like worked so hard. Like he started his own business when he was in his early thirties. Um, and he was a truck driver by trade. We started landscaping. So I started working when I was 13 years old, full time as well as going to school. And I did quite well in school on top of like working before school, working after school, working weekends, doing homework via torchlight in a truck driving from city to where we lived. Um, and so for me, I really thoroughly enjoy working. Like I love work and my self-awareness came a couple of years ago because I, I sort of went through the stage where I thought, you know what, like I want to work nine to five. I want to give my wife and my daughter more of my time and sort of try and be the, the social definition of normal. Um, and it put me into a really bad point of depression because I don't, didn't feel like I, I could push myself as hard as I could on a daily basis between nine to five. Mm -hmm. And so when I had that self-awareness, I, I really sat down and had a really good chat with my wife and we have a great relationship in the way of she understands who I am and what I do. And at the time we first got together in 2006, 2007, when we got together, I was writing a magazine in New York. I had my full-time assistant general manager's job and I had my own bar tool company. And that was, I, I was still, I would say that compared to now it was very light. So we had a good chat and she was like, you know what? Like I'd prefer to have really great time with you only a handful of hours a week instead of you being depressed and spending like six, seven hours with us at night. Mm -hmm. And that was when I was like, you know what? Like it's not about quantity, it's about quality. And so that, that's the sort of thing. And I, I see a lot of people who want, who reflect and they go, well, I want what you have. I want the junket trips. I want the, the competitions. I want the books. And also so I'm like, great. Yeah. But you, you, you also want to have your weekends off. So you need to have this sort of self-awareness with your goal alignment. And so for me, I'm happy working 12 to 14 hours a day, six, seven days a week. I usually take Sunday afternoons off from about three, four o'clock mm -hmm. um, and take the evening off. Um, but the rest of the time I'm switched on and plugged in. And so it makes me happy. It makes my wife happy. makes my daughter happy. Um, I'm sure as my daughter gets a little bit older, I'm going to have to tweak it a little bit. But again, self-awareness. So yeah, work-life balance is the hustle and the grind is your definition of hustle and grind. And you shouldn't let anyone judge what your hustle and grind is and vice versa. And so having that self-awareness, not caring about other people's opinions on work-life balance um, is a big th mantra for me. And I don't want to demonize hustle. Um, but if you want X, Y, Z by the time you're 30, you should hustle. Yeah. You can't, you can't have these massive goals and then still want to watch Game of Thrones and Netflix for 12 hours, 14 hours over the weekend. No, that, that's, that's great perspective. Um, let's, let's talk about TikTok for a little bit now though, since we uh, brought it up when we first uh, came on, uh, you know, I mean, you, like I said, you've grown a significant audience. Um, so what has the TikTok experience experience been like for you? It has, it has been, I have to admit, it has been kind of ridiculous. I've actually got a consult with a friend of mine um, who does cheeky cocktails out in New York tomorrow because she doesn't quite understand TikTok. And a lot of people don't. Um, so obviously I sort of, I'm a massive Gary Vee fan. Um, and so... I, I could tell it, that, by the way, like a second ago when you were talking about watching 14 hours worth of Game of Thrones. That, that was like, that's a Gary Vee thing, I think. But sorry, continue. That's fair. Um... And so he talked about TikTok. And so I sort of went on TikTok and I posted a few times and then I watched it and I didn't post anything for about eight months. 
and I was watching it and looking at cocktails and what sort of drinks were getting made, the, the demographic. And really it was a bit of a case study into how brands could leverage TikTok to start with. Um, because I do think that it is another pla- is another social media platform. Not a lot of brands are doing anything really special on the platform. Blue Coat Gin out of Philly is doing fantastic on it. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to sort of see where it's at. And so around late December, early January this year, I, uh, I started seeing, I started like hashtagging cocktails and hashtagging certain things. And I was starting to see the sort of cocktails sort of start creeping out of the college college cocktail style stuff and i was like okay let's give this a try and so i I went to work and i taped like i first researched the top 100 classic cocktails that every bartender should know and i started just popping off off the list tick 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 and i did about 14 videos my shtick is i I don't have time to do transitions i don't have time to do multiple shots i don't have time to spend like editing a, a one minute video for tiktok so i do one shot one cocktail one minute done and it, it works out, I would say, 95% of the time. Because if you go over that minute, there's been many times when I finished the cocktail. And I go, and that's how you make a cocktail. And, oh, God damn, sure. oh, over a minute. <laughs> okay, let's start again. Reset and do it again. And about 95% of the time. And it just, it just stuck. And I, I started looking at the algorithm and I started looking at the demos and stuff like that. And the interesting thing was is that it is polar opposite to Facebook and Instagram. So Facebook and Instagram, the stuff that gets fed to us is about 95% what we want to see because that's the algorithm and about 5 to 10% that those outliers, you know, like, you know, you, I'm sure you do it like Facebook and Instagram. All of a sudden you have Tipsy Bartender. Yeah. I always use Tipsy Bartender as a, as a thing. I think he's a genius. He really leverages the audience he has. Not cocktails for me, but that's the macro. Um, they're the outliers on Facebook and, and, and Instagram. TikTok, on the other hand, is flipped. It is 10% cocktails that I would want to see. And then 90% this massive macro market that most bartenders don't want to admit exists because we get stuck in our little bubble of awesomeness because of social media that, oh, we're doing something fantastic because we're fucking milk washing a a cocktail or barrel aging or doing something with beeswax. And I do all that sort of stuff, but like that's what we get stuck in with our little bubble. And so, but for me, humbling experience when I do research on packaging and stuff at distilleries, I go to a liquor store and hang out for half hour, 45 minutes and watch what people are buying. Mm -hmm. And it's the most humbling experience in your life when you go to a liquor store and still see people like picking up Mickey's of vodka and Lucky or Bud Light and and all this sort of stuff. And you're just like, the last 10 years of my life has literally not made a dent in the drinking culture of this city. And that's what TikTok is, is literally that liquor store in a neighborhood watching what people buy. And so... I started just going through the classics and going through the cocktails and stuff. Um, and my old fashioned video was the first one that really blew up. I got like three quarter of a million views on that one. Um, and the whole, the whole state of Wisconsin hated my guts. I've never been hated by a whole state um, of people, but Wisconsin is very special. And I'm going to get to that, (laughs) but the whole state, like I answered it and I answer every comment. That's one thing I do is I answer every single comment, which sometimes gets up into the thousands. But Wisconsin has their very own special old fashioned. 
So I, I, I kept answering everyone. Yep, yep, I understand. It's not brandy. I know it's a Wisconsin, not a Wisconsin old-fashioned. Believe it or not, people outside of Wisconsin, nobody makes old-fashions the way you do. I apologize if I offended you. So then I made a Wisconsin old-fashioned, and then I found out really the culture of old-fashions in Wisconsin is the weirdest thing you could ever imagine because they have a, a state um, – a, um, a pop of the state, soda of the state, which is a sour and a sweet soda – specifically designed it's called Jollibee or something specifically designed for old fashions so then you get into brandy old-fashioned sweet brandy old-fashioned sour so it's just muddled fruit sugar like eight to ten dashes of bitters three ounces of brandy topped with a sour or sweet soda um sort of like a seven up and a seven up and a sour soda i suppose so you get brandy old-fashioned sweet brandy old-fashioned sour Whiskey old-fashioned sweet, whiskey old-fashioned sour, SoCo old-fashioned sweet, SoCo old-fashioned sour, and then the garnishes just go... I had people going, oh, yeah, I love mine with pickled Brussels sprouts and pickled mushrooms. And I'm like, what is happening? Like, this may... I don't understand what is happening right now, but that's what they do in Wisconsin. And then the one that really blew up for me was, I think it's at almost 2 million views now, is the Lemon Drop Martini, which I... I wish it was something cooler. I wish it was something like a Negroni or a, an old, fa I think a, a Zabaliato or something like that. I wish it wasn't a lemon drop. I wish I wasn't the famous for the lemon drop guy. Um, but it, it shows that it, it does show that brands have a big positioning play in, in TikTok that I don't think they're taking um, liberty of. And it just shows regardless of how fancy your cocktail culture gets in whatever city, there is a massive macro market that will just eat up stuff. Like my whiskey sour video, I posted that a month ago and I still get comments daily about it now. And so it's still going flipping through the FYP regularly, your for your page. So yeah, TikTok is a, a an interesting beast and it's been very humbling and liberating at the same time because it really shows where we have to go with our cocktail culture and also how brands can really use it because it's sort of brands still don't have any idea how to use that as a marketing tool. I remember seeing this meme somewhat recently. Uh, and you know, they were, they were probably young girls, maybe, maybe 21 freshly, freshly drinking. Uh, and they were so excited that they invented this new drink that involved vodka and bubbly soda water. <laughs> so hard. Okay, great. So you, you just discovered a vodka and soda. Okay. <laughs> And I guess one trend going on around recently uh, was like a fill fill the bottle with a, a Corona beer, and you just drink about part of the neck, and you just start filling it up with other other concoctions. Yeah, the the amaretto and Corona Dr Pepper challenge became a pretty big thing. I still don't look at the trends. Um, I stick with just the cocktail. Like I have people ask me to make stuff with Fireball and stuff. I'm like, listen, like there is hundreds of profiles on tiktok um i'm not there for the viewership i'm not there for the the likes or the anything like that i really am just testing the waters because from a brand perspective a lot of i don't think brands need to have profiles yet because then you have to start creating content and that becomes a, a bit of a nightmare yeah. but i think it's a, a mixture of old school product placement and new school influence marketing and so someone asked me about it the other day and i'm like listen Facebook and Instagram, you're telling people what your brand is about. It's your brand message. TikTok, on the other hand, is how brand, how your brand is perceived by the people. That's great. So 
you look at um, Shake Shack. I use Shake Shack as an example for someone's case study of the day. Shake Shack, Facebook, Instagram. Shake Shack, Shake Shack, Shake Shack, Shake Shack. TikTok, they literally repost other people's videos of them visiting Shake Shack as part of their TikTok strategy. So it's not their brand message going out. It's actually them just highlighting people and influencers who are going to their, their stores. So for booze companies, when I say old school product placement, you know, like the old James Bond style product placement, Smirnoff and Gordon, Jake and Vespa, align yourself with an influencer that does similar to what your brand, but you really can't tell them what your brand message is because it's how they, how they want your brand to be perceived by the people that follow them which is really hard to do for a lot of marketing people and big brands because they're like, well, we have a brand message. We only, we only do this, this, and this. I'm like, yeah, but if I, if I made a lemon drop and said ounce and a half of, I just say vodka. I always just say the generic thing. If I say ounce and a half of kettle one vodka in people's heads, they automatically think that their kettle, their lemon, lemon drops should be made with kettle one. Mm -hmm. Same thing with like old fashions, old fashions, two ounces of Knob Creek bourbon. All of a sudden people like either have an opinion on using Knob Creek or they go, oh, wow, I should really try using Knob Creek. And so it's this weird sort of hybrid old school mentality towards product placement and new school influencer style marketing. It's all about third party validation with that. That's. Oh, I love that. I'm going to use that one third party validation. Yep. Write that down. You got that. Right. I'm going to. You can use it. Um, well, so I also uh, see that you spend some time on Clubhouse as well, the the the, the drop-in audio app. Uh, what's what's been your experience on that so far? I really enjoy it. There's there's a lot of negatives. To, well, there's always positive and co pros and cons to all these sort of uh, social media platforms, especially the new ones. Um, for me, it reminds me of you may be old enough uh, the old school chat rooms that you would have had back in the the late '90s, early 2000s, where you had real world conversations with people via text. That's pretty much what it is. And I really love that portion of it. But then on the flip side, it kind of is like a audio version of your LinkedIn bio. There's a lot of people out there hosting like marketing rooms and like doing social media marketing rooms for restaurants. And you go to their profile on Instagram. It's like, you have a thousand followers. Who the hell are you to be telling how restaurants should be marketing themselves when you can't even market yourself? Um, so it, you, you can, there's a little bit of bullshit and a little bit of uh, phoniness to it, but there's some really great rooms and you connect with people that you would never connect with. Like I've literally got five or six jobs out of, out of Clubhouse just from being on there a couple of months. Like um, I'm currently doing a branding and logo and P CPG uh, project with a distillery here on Vancouver Island up in Parksville. And I met Ellie in a Clubhouse room she popped into a craft distilling like room very early in the days when it was a little bit quieter. And she's talking about opening a distillery in Parksville. And so I jump in, I'm like, Oh, Hey, I'm in Victoria. I'd love to have a chat to you. Can we connect? And I literally got her, her project. So tasting room design, online web dev, CPG and branding, the whole shebang out of a quick connection at clubhouse. And so it, it does open, it sort of lay, levels the playing field because you can sort of like creep on people's LinkedIn profiles. You can creep on their Instagram accounts and you may reach out some, you may not. Clubhouse sort of levels the playing field and gives everybody this equal portion of the voice. Yeah, there's moderators and they have to bring it up on stage and that sort of stuff, but you can really connect with people you would never, ever connect with um, possibly on any other platform or in real life. Yeah, we're, we're currently encouraging some of our clients 
whether they be distillery owners or, or distillers themselves, just to pop in, say hi, introduce themselves either to a current market or maybe a new market where other, you know, even if like, just a bunch of whiskey writers are hanging out and like, that'd be a good yeah. opportunity for them to drop in. And a hundred percent. Like how, how often can you connect with like Paul from few spirits or, um, Oh, what's the name okay, from yeah, brand? Paul, yeah. Paul's on there a lot, isn't he? Yeah, Paul's on there a ton. Like, you'd never be able to connect and have that same sort of conversation with him. Just if you just focus on him, just like you wouldn't have that same conversation on any other platform. And even in a real life, like, conference setting, you'd probably never be able to take that much time out of his day. You know, like, he's on there like an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, probably more than that, but a day. So you'd never be able to sit down with him for an hour and a half and just listen to his pros and cons of opening a distillery in Chicago. So. Yeah, I think it's a, a massive resource. And a lot of people, obviously people are like, oh, it's new, I don't understand it, or it's new and I, I don't want to deal with it. And a lot of people are scared of social media, which is silly. But um, yeah, I think it's a fantastic platform. There's some pitfalls, but every platform has pitfalls. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, so I do appreciate uh, the conversation oh, no, today. Is, is there anything coming up that you really want to let people know about? Any? I mean, you said you're working on a fourth book. Uh, you might be doing some traveling soon. What's What's going on? Um, well, until the restrictions lift, um, I've got my third book hopefully coming out next month. That's all about, it's a cocktail book all based around BC uh, craft distillers. Um, I've got about 68 distillers in the province out of the almost 80 in the book, which is I'm really, really excited about. The pitches are awesome. The cocktails are fantastic. Um, that, that one's a really great guidebook that I'm really looking forward to for, uh, for next month. Um, and then I, I was working on the second edition of great Northern cocktails to come out this year as well, but with everything and bartenders leaving the industry and, and changing roles and, and moving places and stuff, I was like, let's just put it off for another year and I can start working that in June, July and have it out for next year. So great Northern cocktails, the second edition comes out next year and I'll be looking at close to 75 to maybe another hundred bartenders in that, which will pop it up to about two fifty close to 250 bartenders around Canada that'll be in that next book. Um, I'm just grinding. I'm really, I'm just grinding away at a lot of different like projects. Like we've got three branding projects, a couple of web dev and e-com projects. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to Clive sort of being back to normal with bar seating and stuff. Cause the next menu we sort of built for that is really, really fun. Um, I really like to travel because last year I was supposed to, do so much travel in that first six months and it was like my biggest travel year to date and this is the longest i've been in victoria for over a decade so i'm hoping some of my southeast asian projects come back online the one the couple in myanmar and the one in vietnam come back up online early next year um i'm hoping to go to cognac um spain the ukraine um and possibly um uh, berlin this year later on in the second half of the year so Right now, I'm just I'm I am happy to be home, but I'm also getting itchy feet about getting out and being in airports and eating bad food in airports and then getting on planes. So it sounds like if anybody out there has any travel questions, they need to go to Clubhouse or leave a comment on his TikTok videos and ask because he will respond to them. Um, Sean, thanks very much for for your time today. No, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Like, uh, I you research stuff that a lot of people don't know about me and uh, and and pitch me questions that a lot of people haven't asked me before. Yeah, well, you know, hey, that's uh, you do your job, I do mine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate your time, Michael. I really enjoyed it. All right, everybody. That wraps up another episode of Eat, Drink, Social. If you have a story to share or know somebody that does, feel free to reach out to us at www.ipgagency.com. <laughs>